Hi everyone and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 13 of the 2018-2019 curling season. This week we welcome Emma Miskew of Team Homan and Kirk Myers of Team Myers to discuss their victories at the Tour Challenge on the weekend. And we also welcome Colin Kurds, who skipped his team from Assiniboine, Manitoba to a Canadian Mixed Championship on the weekend. Also this week, with all the buzz emanating out of Calgary surrounding Tuesday's Olympic plebiscite, we also have a feature interview with Robert Livingstone, who is one of the world's foremost journalists when it comes to Olympic bids, and he's a Canadian to boot. All this and more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. So before we get started, if you've ever wondered how they get those nice graphics into the ice at Grand Slams at the World Championships and at Nationals in Canada and the US, well the answer is provided by Jedi's, whose in-ice graphics from easy and textile logos to the world famous Jedi's Full House product are great ways for clubs to enhance the appearance of their ice and to generate much needed additional sponsorship revenues. Easy and textile logos are the industry standard for high quality logos and they're a snap to install. Meanwhile, Jedi's customizable full houses are a relatively new way for clubs to grow sponsorship revenues by offering maximum brand recognition to those sponsors. No one can match Jedi's design services, quick turnaround times, and product quality, which is why Jedi's products are valued by major organizations such as Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, USA Curling, and Sportsnet, who trust Jedi's to provide the products they require for their high-profile events. Jedi's. They bring ice to life. Arnold Ashton's passion for curling, along with his natural propensity to explore new ways to better the game, led him to a whole new world of product design. As a result, all Ashton Curling Supplies products are designed with the curler in mind. Ashton's patented ultralight RDS technology makes it possible to change and customize their slider with any combination of sliding discs. With equal resistance on all sides, the circular design that guarantees a straight slide. These circles have also been designed larger and with stabilizing bars from the outer unit sole to produce the most stable straight sliding shoe the world has ever seen. Go to www.asham.com for brooms, apparel, and revolutionary designed footwear. And if you're considering buying new curling shoes, you must consider the rotator sole. It's the sole of the future. From the Hacks Recap of Week 13 of the 2018-2019 Curling Season is powered by The Curling Zone, your premier source for curling results from around the world. Visit us at www.curlingzone.com. It was a busy week in curling with a few major events happening around the world. At the Pacific Asia Championships, Minji Kim and her team from Korea defeated Japan 12-8 in the women's final, while Team Matsumura of Japan defeated China 9-7 to take the men's title. Meanwhile, at the Canadian Mixed Curling Championships in Winnipeg, Colin Kurds and his team of Megan Walter, Brendan Balaka, and Sarah Oliver from Assiniboine, Manitoba defeated Nova Scotia 7-4 to win the title and will now represent Canada at the World Mixed Championship next fall. Skip Colin Kurds joined from the hack to discuss his team's championship win. Colin, let me start with the typical first question when someone has just won their first national championship, and that is, how does it feel to have won the Canadian Mixed Championship on the weekend, and has it sunk in yet? Um, I don't think it's fully sink in yet. It's obviously super exciting, and we're all feeling very excited. But I don't think we'll even really understand fully uh, how excited we are and um, like happy for ourselves until we start getting some of the clothes and the Canadian gear, and even like getting on the plane and uh, leaving for the world. I think that's when we'll uh, fully feel kind of what it's like to represent Canada, because until then we won't have put on the Canada jacket or anything like that. 
So um, I know I know it's going to be eleven months or so, but we're we're super happy and super proud of ourselves and excited for what we've done. Um, but it gives us eleven months to just be even more excited for when that time actually comes. So tell me a little bit about the final. You had a 5-4 lead over Nova Scotia and the Hammer heading into the final end. Were you a little nervous, and how did it play out? I don't really know. It was hard to hard to kind of remember how I was feeling during the end. I think before we threw any rocks, I was getting a little nervous. But then Sarah put hers, like, top four and right on top kind of thing. Like, she set up the end pretty good. And then by about, like, third's first rock, there wasn't much going on. There was a couple of rocks behind the tee line, so I knew that I was probably throwing something with big weight, just ripping it out of there. And then uh, my last, their rock came to a stop. He tapped us back, I believe, and was just sitting top four kind of thing, shot. And I just had basically pick it off the top, and we were going to be shot in the back there. So um, if I could just make contact anywhere high side, then we would have been okay. So... When I went to go through, I, I didn't really even take any time. just kind of put the broom down through it. I wasn't too nervous throwing the rock, but then as soon as I let it go, I kind of, like, had a moment where I was like, oh, did I throw this bad? Or, and then I saw the line, and I knew I was going to make it. So it's pretty fun watching the rock go down. Colin, curling fans uh, get to know many men's and women's teams because they're on TV so much, and that is certainly not the case for mixed teams who typically don't get much attention. But often there are some very interesting stories surrounding many of the mixed teams at the national championship. As an example, Mike Anderson and his team from Thornhill won the Canadian mix last year and won the Worlds a few weeks ago. They've been together for eight years, which is long for most mixed teams, and had gone through several experiences together as a team. I was wondering if you could take a few moments to share your team's story. So we don't have much history in terms of an actual team. This was our first year as us four actually playing together in mixed. The year previous to that, me, um, Brendan, and Sarah, so the lead in the second this year, had played together, and Megan was new on the team this year. But in terms of knowing each other, um, we're all really good friends. So we have grown up growing together in juniors for years. Um, and that's why we decided that we were going to do the mix thing as something that obviously we're going to take seriously. Like it's a competitive curling event, but it was also a very social and fun event for us. So that's kind of the way that we started it out is just going to go have some fun with some friends. Um, and it ended up working out for us and now we're going to head to the world and, uh, we're super excited about that. And finally, Colin, unlike the winners of the Briar and Scotties who head off to Worlds a few weeks after Nationals, your team now has to wait almost a year to represent Canada at the Mixed Worlds. Have you put any thought into how you will prepare for that event, considering it's so far removed from your victory in Winnipeg last week? I think it'll be a lot like what we did for Nationals, because it's not quite as long, but similar to uh, Provincials and Nationals. There was a big gap. We had won the Provincials at the end of last curling season, and then the Nationals wasn't until, like, right now, November of the next curling season. So we kind of just, for the first couple weeks after we won the Provincials, we were just super excited and kind of were didn't do much of curling at all, didn't really do any prep work or anything for the Nationals because it was so far away. Um, went through the summer, kind of just did our thing, all kept in contact, got together a couple times just to, say hi, whatever, do our thing. We're all friends, so we talk off the ice a lot. And we're all, like, it's not just a, like a curling relationship. We're friends in, in a way that's not just 
curling, so I think that helps. And then uh, come curling season this year, we would schedule practices just uh, here and there as the curling season started, just to like make sure we were still throwing together. And then the like, couple weeks before we uh, actually started playing, we got some good practices in, tried to schedule some sort of like exhibition games or play like ends um, against ourselves, kind of stuff like that in terms of the curling thing. Um, so I think that's kind of the approach we're going to take. Obviously, we have Jim Waite, who uh, is going to be the Curl Canada representative coming with us, and he's already told us that he will be there to, uh, for any questions that we have, any suggestions that he has, he'll just send our way. Um, they're going to provide us with a lot of different resources, probably the sounds of it, whether it's uh, just like getting us uh, into some sort of bond spills together or if they're, we want to do some training sessions with them. He said that they're going to have the resources for us to do that, so that's really helpful. The Tour Challenge, the third event of this season's Pinty's Grand Slam of Curling, took place last week in Thunder Bay, Ontario. The Tour Challenge is unique in the sense that it includes both a Tier 1 and Tier 2 event, with the winners of the Tier 2 events earning a spot in the Meridian Canadian Open Slam in January. In the Tier 2 Women's Final, Team Stern of Switzerland defeated Team Yoshimura of Japan 6-5, to while in the men's Tier 2 event, Team Myers of Saskatoon took an early 5-1 lead and cruised to an 8-3 win over Team McDonald of Kingston in the men's final. Kirk Myers joined from the hack to discuss his team's win in Thunder Bay and also to talk about how the team has progressed in their first few months together. Kirk, we didn't get to see much of your Tier 2 final at the Tour Challenge on TV, but it seemed like your team was in control most of the way. You stole two points in the fourth end to take a 5-1 lead into the break. How big was that steal, and uh, did it allow you to play more open and control the second half of the game? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was. I mean, they got a bad they got a bad pick there a little bit, and uh, and so that put us up four points. And uh, um, the, the Marsh boys in the middle there, I, I, a lot of people don't know a lot about them, but they can hit like... Uh, like some of the best in the world. So when we get a few points lead, uh, it's pretty hard for other teams to come back on. And uh, as soon as we were kind of in that, uh, that position, it allows us, allowed us to relax a little bit, uh, throw some throw some hits and clear out some rocks and, uh, and kind of allow us to roll from there. You and your brother have both played in a number of slams in your career. Was that an advantage in the Tier 2 event where most of the teams, even the older, more experienced teams, had limited experience at the slam level? Yeah, I think so. I think... Uh, uh, we've we've been lucky enough to get a lot of those bigger situations in those big arenas with full crowds and that sort of thing in the past. So I think that really allowed us to kind of kind of keep rolling and, and and not worry too much about uh, what's at stake, I guess, because we have experienced it lost in the past. So um, I, I I really do looking back on the game, I really thought that that was where um, we had a lot of uh, had a little maybe a little up on on the McDonald team because uh, they've been playing so good all year. Um, I didn't know where the edge was going to come, but I think that's probably fair to say is um, Dallin and I were able to play in probably uh, slams in our career already. So uh, it was nothing new for us, that's for sure. Your team has been on a pretty good streak lately, making three finals in a row, including your win in Thunder Bay. Have you progressed more quickly than you thought you might this season, or did you have a sense early on that this group would click fairly quickly once they got used to playing together as a team? Uh, you know, before we started, I, I had hoped it would click, but I didn't know really for sure. I mean, I hadn't skipped in um, 10, 15 years. I've really never skipped at a high level. So um, the fact that these guys were willing to put up with me for the first few events, we played four events and we didn't get close to qualifying really. And we weren't we weren't really clicking. We were making lots of shots, but we weren't winning games. And 
so that was a, that was a kind of a tester time for the for the team. But um, to be honest, the three guys in front of me stayed behind me and, and told me they believe in what we're doing here. And so it took a lot of uh, soul searching, a lot of hard work to kind of figure out what we needed to do to to start being successful. And uh, and Medicine Hat it started to click. And then uh, obviously in Morris last weekend it was going really good. And then this weekend, obviously with the undefeated victory, it kind of came together nicely. So it, it did. I, I didn't know if we were going to get that kind of success that quick in terms of getting to finals and winning events. Um, but I wish we would have had a little more success early in terms of just qualifying for playoffs. A few times, it took the pressure off a little bit. But uh, um, so it's nice to it's nice to kind of get that really really high high level game that we have now. But it's a matter of kind of putting more together and start being competitive at that Grand Slam now and that when you're playing some of the best teams in the world. So that's kind of the next step for us. So we'll have to go back to the drawing board and figure that one out. After all the success you've had in mixed doubles over the past season, was there a small part of you that was anxious to have some early success with the new team so that you might not start getting recognized more for your mixed doubles exploits than for what you've accomplished in men's play? Uh, you know, I, I hadn't thought of it like that necessarily. Um, I wasn't too worried about what what people were thinking of whether I was better at what discipline and maybe I didn't have it for four person, um, but but I do enjoy winning. So um, when when we were having some success in the mixed doubles world, but not having success in the four person world, I go to there was times when I sit back and lay in bed at night and go maybe I should just you know focus on the the, the mixed doubles game and let this uh, four person game go. I mean, whenever you're you're in a slump, you always go to the worst possible place. So that was more of my mindset. Uh, than anything I wasn't too worried about what people thought I was better at but more you know what I could really excel at but uh, after the last few weeks and the success we've had and oh man the guys have been playing good in front of me so um, now I'm excited obviously for the four-person game again. I'm curious though Kirk were you able to lean on your mixed double success to reaffirm that you were an elite curler despite any difficulties or slumps you may have had during parts of last season and also early this season with the new lineup because I know in the mind of elite athletes it sometimes doesn't take much time for them to start doubting their skills and their abilities uh, in their sport and I, I'm thinking perhaps that your successes in mixed doubles helped to keep you going from a, from a confidence point of view as you worked your way and as you started adapting to your new lineup this season yeah absolutely it did I mean uh, that, that's with mixed doubles we've all seen it is is there's no hiding you know the two players on that team have to be top level so um, the fact we were winning at mixed doubles really gave me the confidence and, and the the knowledge to know that I do belong and and I am one of those elite players in the country so um, that that is absolutely during the tough times in the in the when I was learning to skip here that was something I went back on I kept telling myself you know you know you're one of the best you've seen it you have results and and definitely the success in mixed doubles kind of kept that confidence up as as we were progressing with the new team and finally Kirk you will now get to play in the Meridian Canadian Open Slam in January are you going to have to rework your schedule as a result because I believe there is a wedding you have to attend close to the start of the Canadian Open in January <laughs> That's right. Uh, the, the flight. The, uh, my brother's getting married in Hawaii on January third, and my flight comes home on January sixth. And the Canadian Open starts on January eighth, so um, won't won't affect it at all. I might be a little jet lag, but uh, I think most curlers would tell you they wouldn't they wouldn't miss a, a slam for anything, and they certainly wouldn't miss a slam in their home province. So um, I, I would be there barring something crazy. So uh, we'll we'll be needed. We'll be getting a, uh, a sub for that event. He'd let us go. He let us know the day we, we formed the team that uh, uh, the beginning of January is out for him in 2019. He's, he's on his honeymoon um, in Hawaii, so um, we'll be finding a, a super spare for the Slam in, uh, in North Battleford there. 
Before getting to the Tier 1 results in Thunder Bay, let's update you on some of the other action on the World Curling Tour this past weekend. At the Crestwood Ladies Fall Classic in Edmonton, Courtney Fesser of Saskatoon defeated Krista Hilker of Edmonton 5-3 in the final. Meanwhile, at the original 16 bond spiel in Calgary, it was Ted Appleman of Edmonton defeating James Paul, also from Edmonton, by a score of 8-1 in the final. In Europe, at the International Zio Women's Tournament, Team Kubiskov of the Czech Republic defeated Team Kovaleva of Russia 8-6 in the final. And at the mixed doubles event in Sochi, it was a Scottish team of Aitken and Andrews defeating the Russian duo of Komarova and Goryachev 7-6 for the title. As for the Tier 1 event at the Tour Challenge in Thunder Bay, Team Jacobs got an emotional victory over Team Botcher in the final of the men's event by a score of 6-5. It was a first slam title for the team from Sault Ste. Marie in some 18 months, and it came a few weeks after going winless at the Masters Grand Slam. In an interesting side note, Adam Kingsbury, who coached Team Homan during the last Olympic cycle, was on the bench with Team Jacobs, and indications are he will now serve as their coach. In the women's Tier 1 final, Team Homan defeated Team Fleury 8-4. Emma Miskew, the third for Team Homan, joined from the hack to discuss her team's first slam title of the season. Emma, Team Fleury is obviously a well-experienced team, but this was their first time in a slam as a team, as a unit. How much does your past experience and success in slam finals help you when you reach another final, especially in the first end or two when nerves can be a bigger factor? It certainly seemed like your team was hitting on more cylinders than they were early in the final of the Tour Challenge, despite a couple of misses. I didn't actually see them. They weren't really struggling. Like, the first time, they definitely were set up for two. And, I mean, I had thrown, I was trying to split the house and throw it to the house. So I don't think that we were all over them in the first couple ends. I think that it was pretty evenly matched. In the second end, we were in a lot of trouble. And Rachel made a really nice triple, and Tracy ended up giving her a double on the next one, which she made. So it was kind of, it looked like a, it was a big point swing. It, it looked like a crazy score, but really the whole end, we were just hoping to get a point out of it. So um, I think it kind of, it was a bit tricky, and um, they got a bit fooled on the spot and just it, it slipped a little deep and gave us an out. So I I, I don't really see <laughs> that it, we weren't really firing an awesome one just to start, but once we got the lead, um, that's kind of we're right in our element there. So then, then it looked that way for sure. <laughs> Now, that's a good point, because to be honest, those two first ends could have just as easily ended with Team Flurry up 2-1, as opposed to your team being up 3-1. Yeah, they exactly. Or even worse than that, like if she had just, she just rolled out in the first end for two, and then in the second end, they were set up for a, a steal. Like, we were sitting okay, and I had a draw to come in, and we just wicked off, but it gave them a double. So, it just... Things didn't, weren't exactly going our way in the second end, and it really turned around just on skipped rocks. So I, I think that um, our experience has helped us just to stay shot by shot in those moments. And we've been in enough finals now where we're not so scared that if we give up a couple points early, the game's over. We know we can kind of stay close, and hopefully something will get some breaks or something will go our way. Uh, I think that's more where our experience helped us, but um, we did – get more a few more breaks yesterday for sure now your team would not have even been in the final had it not been for a hard-fought win in the semifinal versus team roth one shot in particular stands out in that game and that was your triple takeout in the extra end that cleared the front of the house and the rings for rachel did you see that triple the whole time or were you trying to clear the front and getting the one in the house was just a nice bonus uh well i knew it was there but really you're just trying to get those the two guards out of the way because at least then they have to make a perfect guard or we can remove that stone in there. Um, normally a full eight rock where it was, uh, we're not worried Rachel can't draw the forefoot against that, but that surface 
that night. Um, we were getting flies that were falling on the seat. So we weren't exactly confident in throwing a perfect draw to the forefoot when we weren't sure which rocks were picking off of like fly cuts and which rocks were just where it was just slow. So we um, we were hoping we would have a hit on the last one or a draw to full eight versus the forefoot, which isn't what like Rachel can draw the T line at, at any given time. It was just what we were faced at that point. So um, I was hoping to get two guards out of the way, and then if you hit it in the perfect spot, you know that the triple is always there. Um, I was frustrated because I had a few picks that game so I really was dialed in almost mad trying to make it and it worked out. Emma there's a growing number of teams that use analytics to dictate some of their in-game decisions even early on in a game. Has your team subscribed to that or do you simply use analytics to help you establish a game plan ahead of time and perhaps to help you make strategy decisions later in games? Uh, We are a little bit aware of our win-loss numbers based on when we score points versus not scoring points, but not in great detail. We just know um, there's a few situations where we know um, if we can score in the sun, whether it's one or more, um, it sets us up pretty well, whereas um, other ends maybe aren't as important. Um, we're not crazy into analytics. It, it does it is dependent um, in our eyes on the ice conditions that we're getting because there's certain events like the last event the Masters that we played in where it was very clear how frosty it was for everyone Um, and a game like that you know that the ice is just going to get more and more challenging as the game goes on so trying to do math to have the hammer in certain ends to score certain points in certain ends isn't exactly helpful if you're going to be throwing a lot harder shots because of the ice conditions so we we will pay attention to it um, and just be aware of it and when when we can really go for a fourth versus when letting them blank is okay, that sort of stuff. But we um, we really just try to go out there and uh, string a few shots together. And when we have hammer, we really try to not give up any steals and make sure we score one, hopefully two, and force as much as we can. I have a bigger picture question for you. For many of the teams, uh, the first year of a new cycle is a chance to get to know new teammates and implement the systems and processes they will follow over the next four years. In the case of Team Holman, you've been through pretty much everything together as a unit. So what are the non-results-based objectives for your team this season? You've won a World Curling event, a slam, and made another slam final, so it certainly doesn't seem like you're trying to ease your way into this new cycle. Well, looking after last season... um we decided if we were going to like keep pushing to to be better that we were going to go all in. So we didn't want to just come out this season and put half our attention into it or not all of our energy and then not be successful and be frustrated about that. We decided like, if we were going to do this, we're going to do it at 100% like we have been in the past few years. Otherwise, you're spending so much time away from home and family and jobs and making sacrifices and then not giving it your all on the other end. So we just, we talked to the team and we're like, well, um, we all wanted to keep playing. We all wanted to keep playing together and we all wanted to make sure that everyone was at the same place in terms of really wanting to put everything into it still. And um, it's just for the enjoyment of the game too, just knowing, well, we're still trying to get better and we're still trying to learn. Um, it makes it a lot more fun than just being like, oh, guess I'm going to another event this weekend. So we we love it. We get along really well. We enjoy all the time that we spend together on the road. So we just try to go out and enjoy the time we spend on the ice as well. And 
in addition to that, every training session we have, we're trying to learn. And um, it, it just, the learning process is what makes the whole thing so enjoyable, this whole dream, this lifestyle. It's, it's a, lot of, a lot of fun for us, um, but I don't, I think if we had just gone in just being like, oh, this year doesn't matter for points, and so we'll just take her easy and not really put the effort in, I don't think it, we would have that same joy because we wouldn't be seeing the results that we wanted. And finally, Emma, I heard you call down to the other end once or twice on the weekend to get Rachel to change her call to something you seem more comfortable with. I realize that you and Rachel have played together for years, so the situation might be unique, but for the junior and recreational players that listen to our podcast, what's your typical rule of thumb when it comes to providing input to Rachel even after an initial call is made? I think, like, I can tell because I've been playing with Rachel for so long when she's looking and she's not 100% sure what the right call is then sometimes I'll speak up with what my first instinct was because then it, it would help her because we are on time clock so if it's something where she I can tell she's uncertain sometimes I'll just give my two cents right off the bat so that she can think okay yeah I was going that direction too that's probably the right call or we can talk about it more or if she really feels strongly about a different shot then she'll call that shot it's it's not when I make a suggestion it's purely a suggestion on my end uh, from what I'm seeing from the other end and maybe knowing the confidence level of the thrower whether that's myself or the other two Um, but primarily like my job as a third is to be her caddy and if that's to suggest something that either she hasn't seen or um, maybe it's just something that we think will make her shots easier. A lot of that is that we want to make sure that she has a shot and it's not a super, super hard one. So whatever option we can throw at the time that will give her the easiest shot at the end of the day. Um, Sometimes I will make a suggestion like that or depending on the scoreboard. So uh, I usually look for... Uh, an opening whether I if she goes down and calls the shot immediately it takes a little bit more for me if I see something that she might have missed to say something because I'm like she's confident she put the broom down but if I sense any sort of uncertainty or um, I can see her thinking then um, sometimes I'll offer a suggestion right off the bat if you're looking to buy some new curling equipment look no further than hardline curling for those who play with the ice pad they know it's the best curling brush whether it's the U.S. Olympic gold medalist Team Schuster or women's Olympic gold medalist Sweden's Team Hasselberg and their countrymen Team Adine, or how about the top Canadian teams Team Gushu, Kevin Cooey, Brad Jacobs, Team Carruthers, Kerry Anderson, and Chelsea Carey. The list is endless. And Hardline is not just curling brooms. They offer a full range of curling equipment to get you playing your best, including shoes, apparel, and the Pro Slide Delivery Aid designed by Reed Carruthers. Visit their website at www.hardlinecurling.com and see why the top teams in the world choose Hardline for their equipment needs. Before we move on to our final guest of the week, I wanted to remind you that From the Hack is part of the Curling Podcast Network, along with the Two Girls in the Game podcast and the Curling Legends podcast. If you haven't subscribed to those two podcasts yet, you should really check them out. A special treat this week for those that have been following the Olympic bid process out of Calgary. I recently did an interview with Rob Livingstone of GamesBids.com for my other podcast called The Canadian Sports Story. Robert, who is a world-renowned journalist focusing on Olympic bids and on the history of the Olympics, joined me to discuss the potential 2026 Olympic bid for Calgary and also updated me on what's happening with the other 2026 bids and which cities might be waiting in the wings if each of the three bidding cities have to back out of the process for 2026. 
Robert, you've done a lot of historical research on Olympic bids and the games themselves. Is there a winter host city that has gotten as much return on its sports-specific legacy projects than the city of Calgary has from hosting the 1988 Olympic Games? A lot of cities have, have, um, have created a good uh, winter games or winter sport infrastructure legacy um, in the past. Um, you know, the, the question is whether it's a valuable legacy, whether it gets used. You know, Calgary is one of those cities. The 88 Games provided those venues that, that they're using as, a, as part of the week today. Uh, you know, we had the same thing from Salt Lake City, too. Uh, they built a, a lot of uh, new venues then, and they're leveraging them all now. They, they're all in good repair. And, in fact, you know, they're considered at this point a backup city should, should the 2026 cities drop out of the race. Uh, you, you can even look at cities like Sochi, where they, they built a lot of facilities, but the question is whether they're getting the use that um, that will keep them in good repair and make them available for, for years to come. And just thinking of possible other ones, and, and you know, even Pyeongchang. Uh, they have venues, but the question is whether there's a good legacy use, for instance, for the uh, speed skating oval. And uh, for the arenas there, they're, uh, they don't have good legacy plans, and the possibility is those get converted into other use or get shut down or, or whatever. So, you know, uh, cities build a lot of venues. Um, the key thing is whether they, they use them afterwards and whether they maintain them for, for future use. I think it's fair to say that most Canadians remember the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver and Whistler quite fondly. That being said, could you remind us of what the ballpark final numbers were on the cost for the Vancouver-Whistler Games? If I remember correctly, the Games broke even from an operational perspective, but it was the infrastructure projects that were lumped into the bid that really increased the cost of the Games to the tune of $7 billion, I believe. We'll discuss whether those infrastructure projects should be lumped into bids in a few moments, but I just want to get a reminder of what the final numbers were for Vancouver and whether the bulk of the cost were game specific or if it was for infrastructure projects that would have ultimately been completed regardless of whether Vancouver and Whistler hosted the games or not right yeah I know that that's a good question um the, I, I don't remember the exact figures but I know um for instance the operational budget uh was said to have broken even so those are the costs to actually put on to stage the games that are offset by revenues from ticket sales, merchandising, uh, broadcast revenue, that kind of thing. So the the costs and the revenues balanced out pretty much at the end. Now with those infrastructure costs that uh, ran pretty high, and if I recall correctly, it was in the uh, $7 billion plus range. That was the overall price tag, including infrastructure and operations. Now that infrastructure included transportation improvements, uh, I guess most notably the um, see the Sky Highway improvements to that road between Vancouver and Whistler, you know, that obviously that was a valuable thing to have in place for the games to, to speed up that transportation, make it easier for more volumes of people. But, um, you know, obviously there's a return from that highway for years and decades to come. And, you know, there were, there were other airport improvements. There was a, a metro, uh, I think a light rail improvement as well. Um, so transportation upgrades were, I think, the most costly of that project. Um, and some of the venues, they had already existed. They built a couple more. It was more of a typical Winter Games plan. A lot has been made of the exorbitant price tags attached to games in Sochi and Rio, particularly in Sochi where the number $51 billion is tossed around. Can you provide some context as to why the Sochi games were so expensive and how what the Russians did in Sochi is much different than what is being proposed for Calgary in 2026? Yeah, you know what? In Sochi, they basically started with a blank slate, 
and they built from there. So they built everything. They built um, most venues. Um, it was an extremely compact plan, so they basically took a large piece of land and developed it from scratch, built these venues, then built transportation links. They had to build um, uh, rail to get up to the uh, ski slopes, uh, highways, everything that, that they would need to, to service this area, this new developed area. They also built an amusement park. They were, it was, you know, a huge development project, and at the time it was the biggest development project, um, at least in Europe and, and I believe in the world. It was huge. Um, that's what they did, and that's not what's being planned in any of the uh, Olympic uh, bids that are currently uh, pursuing 2026. Uh, in fact, the complete opposite. They're trying to leverage what's already been developed, already built, already exists. That's the difference, and it's a key difference. Um, we saw, for instance, to, to switch to the Summer Games for a moment, uh, in London they built a, a huge Olympic park as well. Um, not quite to the extent that Sochi did, but they redeveloped a whole new area in the East End. Um, you know, there's a lot of benefits to, to what London did because there's a, a lot of use for those facilities afterwards and a lot of populations use it. Sochi, different question or different circumstance that they aren't seeing the use that they would like to. It's not a big population center. They hope to promote it as a tourism area, which is happening, but it's a little bit different than what London did. Um, having said that, that's not, what that's not what's happening now for 2026. To provide some context to some of the conversation we're about to have, can you provide an overview of Olympic Agenda 2020, which was developed by the International Olympic Committee, in part to decrease the growing costs of hosting an Olympic Games? Yeah, there was, a, um, I guess, a lot of pushback to the growth of the Games where they became big build games. Uh, for instance, in London, where they built a lot of uh, new uh, facilities and infrastructure, uh, Sochi, those places, a lot of pushback that, Cities were saying, hey, we can't get involved in that. Too risky, too expensive. We're not going to do it. So the IOC had to scramble and come up with new plans. So they came up with Agenda 2020, which was a set of reforms. And among those um, were three main bidding reforms. And, and they were designed to reduce the cost of bidding, reduce the cost of hosting, reduce the risks involved. And really the premise there was that um, they said it was okay to not have a compact footprint, spread the venues around, use facilities that you can find that are available. So, um, you know, you see in Calgary where they'll host ski jumping in Whistler instead of spending a lot of money to upgrade the facility that they have. You know, in, in uh, the Sweden bid, they're having or they're planning to use the sliding venue in um, Latvia. Uh, so the idea is don't build, use what you can find. They also introduced a package called the New Norm, which is part of Agenda 2020, which is basically a, a new cost savings that the, the IRC has found, where you know instead of having a, a bed for every single athlete, realize that not all the athletes are there all at once. Some come early, some come late. So they could share facilities not at the same time, but you know one would have it early in, in the first week and another would have it in the second week. Those kinds of savings where suddenly – you know, you don't have to build uh, as many beds as there are athletes. You can reduce the housing infrastructure costs. And there was more. They found a lot more uh, with respect to transportation and those kinds of things, and that will also hopefully, they say, will reduce the costs. 
Now, Robert, I don't know if you got a chance to watch Calgary City Council discuss and debate the bid in the lead-up to its reconsideration vote a couple of weeks ago. Much was made about the fact that Calgarians may not have enough information to make a proper analysis before voting in the plebiscite. In some cases, demanding specifics in areas where specific budget numbers will be very difficult to gauge until later in the process. You understand the particulars of the bidding process as well as anyone. What are the typical limitations that a bid committee faces when it comes to publicly releasing information that is part of the bid package? Yeah, bids are really a tricky balancing act because it is a competitive process. And then at this time, there's, there's three cities involved. And they will be judged by the IOC. And the IOC, assuming they're all around, you know, when they make their choice, will we'll decide um, you know, which is the best bid for them, for the IOC. Um, so it's competitive. And you, you don't necessarily want to divulge all of your strategies, all of your information, because you lose that competitive advantage. You get a, another city saying, hey, we can do that too, let's talk about that. And then there's no advantage there when you're competing. The idea is to have your bid go in on uh, January 11th, which is the schedule this time. The IOC kind of vets these plans, and then you can release it to the public and uh, go from there. But, you know, the IOC has kind of switched up this time. First of all, they've got this dialogue stage going on where cities can get involved, deal with the IOC, talk out the plans, um, see what's going to be good, what's not going to be good, what will work, what won't work. And the IOC is actually being very constructive in this aspect because they're telling the cities, hey, you know, don't build this, don't build that, keep the cost low. Um, we don't want you, we don't want this uh, infrastructure arms race going on where you just try to build better venues than the other city. Um, don't do that. And, and the cities have heard that. So right now what's going on in Calgary is there's obviously a debate between the yes or no with the plebiscite coming up. Um, these referendums, these plebiscites are kind of the new thing, uh, the new common element of the bid process. We've seen several of them over the last few years, much more than, than in the past. But these kinds of discussions are happening, and more and more uh, the taxpayers are being asked, do they want to do this? And in order to answer that question, they need information. Now, the, the other element here is it's so early. We're talking about a, a game that's not happening for another eight years, and big projects like this don't you know, they don't have all, all their information, all their details this early on. Typically, um, they build. They have a you know, raw strategy, and part of that um, planning process is getting that information, is building that information. Um, you know, it's a typical project management approach. So, obviously, the, the taxpayers are really um, interested in getting that information. They're trying to make their choice. It's not available, and the, uh, the Calgary 2026 bid committee is putting together as much as they can. And they have done a lot. They've um, really released more information than, than it, that is typical before the bid book is presented. Uh, we've got a lot of numbers, a lot of details. Uh, the, the Calgary Bid Exploration Committee that started a couple years ago uh, released um, thousands of pages of, of details that normally we wouldn't have seen either. So there's a lot of information out there. Now, I understand taxpayers, they want all the details before they, they commit to it, but, you know, they're just not available. It's a real struggle for uh, Calgary 2026 moving forward. You've written extensively about the Calgary bid, and you've argued that it would have been easier for the yes side in the Calgary bid debate if the bid committee had reined in the cost a little bit more, which includes constructing two new venues. Can you discuss some of the places where the Calgary bid team could have cut back on projected costs? Yeah, Calgary's overall budget is over $5 billion. Um, that's a lot. I mean, it's not a, not a lot 
not necessarily as much as recent games, but it's a high price tag. I don't think it needed to be that way. I think, for instance, the two main venues that were proposed, uh, new venues, were the uh, the small community arena and uh, the field house. Now, um, hockey could have been held uh, the second the second arena could have been in Edmonton, for instance. The IRC would have been fine. They even said that they would be fine with that. Um, and that wouldn't have been an issue. Some of the hockey would have been in Calgary, some in Edmonton, would have saved the price tag of that venue. The Fieldhouse, they could have also leveraged other uh, nearby venues. Um, you know, I, I can't think of specifics, but there are, you know, Edmonton once again, maybe something in Vancouver. Um, and we already know that the ski jumping is going to be in Whistler. Those kinds of strategies could be held. Now, keep in mind that we're, we're still eight years in advance, so the um, city's in talks with uh, the Calgary Flames. And should there be a deal over the for a new NHL arena, then great. You don't need a whole hockey in Edmonton. You bring it back into Calgary. You do that later. Perhaps the approval for the field house comes through in a year or two. Same thing. Now, the big question, and I understand the strategy here that the city's um, trying to take advantage of and that the taxpayers want is the matching funds from the federal and provincial government. So if you include it in this bid package, um, you get those matching funds. So you get this community arena at a reduced price. Uh, well, not a reduced price, but <laughs> but with less of a, a Calgary city taxpayer uh, commitment. Um, same with that field house. And, and that's where it's kind of tricky. Um, I, I don't believe that these venues should be connected with the bid because that's where you get the tax or the um, cost over it. Uh, when you time box a project like that and make it critical for the Olympics, you you introduce a lot of risks. It's got to be done on time. It's got to be done with certain specifications. You can't change it in the middle. If there's labor shortages, that will increase costs because you still have a, a deadline that's you know a line in the sand. You can't cross it. It makes it a lot riskier, and that's where these projects in the past have incurred huge cost overruns. I mean, one of the one of the places. Um, it's always with the infrastructure. You you decouple the infrastructure and you get rid of all that risk. So it's a little balancing act. Do taxpayers want these venues at a you know a reduced uh, um, tax commitment on their part? You know, the federal government, provincial government uh, pay their share, or do they want to include it in the project and risk the overruns? That's really the decision that they have to make. As we mentioned briefly a little earlier, one of the things that has gotten lost in the Calgary debate is the fact that this is a bidding process with two other groups currently involved. Can you provide an update on both the Stockholm and the Milano Cortina D'Ampezzo bids? Sure. In uh, Italy, the, um, there's currently a joint bid between uh, Milano and Cortina D'Ampezzo. Uh, uh, Cortina hosted in 1956, so they have some facilities in place. Milan would be um, the site of the uh, ice events, and they have facilities in place for that. Originally, it was being um, forwarded as a three-city bid, including uh, Turin. They hosted in 2006 a lot of great facilities still uh, from those games that um, might need some upgrades, but they're in place. Now, they had uh, falling out, those three mayors. Um, Milan wanted to be the lead city for this project, and Turin was not willing to pay play the, uh, play the back, backup role there. Um, so uh, Turin ended up uh, dropping out, and Milan and Cortina will be moving forward. At that point, though, the, the Italian government decided that they did not want to fund the project. There was a political fallout there. 
They said they'll support the bid, but they won't provide funding, which is which is something that the IOC likes to see. Like they like to see that the the, uh, the national government is going to fund these projects. So that's a mark against that bid. However, the the regional governments uh, that represent Milan and, and Cortina, they say that they're going to try to fund this thing uh, through their own um, uh, their own taxpayers and and through uh, private funding, and they're hoping to move forward in that respect. Now, there's still a lot of planning that has to happen. This was kind of thrown together just before the IOC deadline back in the um, beginning of October. Um, you know, there's the, the project isn't well organized at this point. At this point, the funding is not guaranteed. There might be some uh, requirements as far as uh, building public support. I'm not sure if there'll be referendums. A lot to uh, a lot of question marks. Even though they have to have them all uh, settled and the bid book published with the IOC on January 11th, along with all the uh, funding guarantees. That's where Italy stands. It's a little risky. Um, well, maybe a lot risky. <laughs> but for um, in Sweden, it's similar. Um, but, you know, in, in Sweden, the, the Stockholm bid has been organizing for well over a year, probably close to two years at this point. It has never had the support of any government in Sweden at this point. So the, the National Olympic Committee of Sweden has developed this project, and it's a really good project. Um, they don't plan to build a lot. Um, they plan to leverage things that they have, and it will be low cost. And they've actually proposed uh, the the organize, organizing or the bid committee has proposed that they could do this with no taxpayer funds. Not entirely true because the governments would still have to support essential services and security. Um, the the uh, bid committee couldn't do that on their own. The organizing committee, so there would be some taxpayer risk, but not a lot. Having said that, the um, there's been a lot of, um, I guess, government um, instability in, in Sweden in the last few months. Uh, they just recently uh, uh, created a coalition government for the city, and as part of that coalition agreement, they said they weren't going to fund the MSC bid. So that's a problem. <laughs> and then you've got a hung parliament in Sweden right now because the elections were held a couple months ago, and they're still trying to settle that. So it will be difficult to get... Uh, you know the the federal government to sign in support of this and, and to sign guarantees, which they would have to do once again before January 11th. Uh, I know the um, the big committees moving forward, the council in Stockholm, to convince them that we could do this, we could do this without a huge taxpayer commitment, and it will work out. But it's a huge hurdle to get that to get the national government to buy in and get it all done before January 11th. It's a it's a big ask. So, you know, you've had these two bids that are competing against Calgary, and they've got a lot to do. There has been speculation that Argentina may rush to put in a late bid for the 2026 Games. Now, my understanding was that the list of bidders had been approved and finalized in October. If any or all of the bid cities that were approved remain in the process, is there any chance that Argentina could be added to the list of bidders? Well, it, yeah, in April, uh, they... They closed the door to uh, new interested cities. So there were seven cities at the time. And as we know, three have dropped out. Another one was eliminated from the shortlist. So at that April deadline, no new cities could get involved. Um, then in October, uh, uh, three new cities or three cities were, were um, accepted to move forward. New cities now, uh, for instance, in Argentina, if it was Buenos Aires or, um, you know, these other cities that I've also talked about, uh, potentially being 
made available, such as Barcelona and Spain and, and of course, the Salt Lake City in the United States, if they were to get involved, it would only be until after if all three of the existing cities were to drop out of the race. And that would end the race. So there'd be no cities, no race, and then the IOC is kind of on its own to decide what their next step would be. They could do it one of two ways. They could reopen a new race and say, okay, we're, we're inviting new applicants, let's do it again. Um, or, and I think the, the second one is the one I'm going to mention is more likely, is that they go directly to the cities that they're interested in um, and just start negotiations at that point and say, hey, we're, you know, are you interested? We're interested. What can we do here? I think most likely that would happen with Salt Lake City. Uh, they're the most prepared. They've already got a lot of public support, and, uh, and they also have government support. They're ready to move forward right away, and I think that's something the IOC would be comfortable with. In Argentina, it's a bit more risky, well, probably a lot more risky. You know, they have to kind of start from scratch. They're going to have to build venues. Um, they're partnering with a, with a uh, city in the south there that is apparently the most southernmost city in the world, and I'm not sure of the infrastructure that's available there, but it's, there are thousands, these two cities are thousands of kilometers apart. It's going to be a big challenge in Argentina. Um, and that's what the IOC, if they're, if they're going to go for a second choice, they're going to go for one that's a lot less risk, which would be Salt Lake City. But we'll see. I mean, we don't know if there's going to be cities come uh, January or, or next June, and the IOC has to elect the winner. And at that point, they'll have to decide what the next step is. And finally, Robert, I realize that you can't speak for the International Olympic Committee, but with the problems that each of the 2026 bid cities are having at this late stage in the bidding process, less than two months before final bid books are to be submitted to the IOC, do you believe that the IOC are at the point where they would almost prefer if they could simply reach out to a city like Salt Lake City in Utah in the U.S. that is ready to host the games and has a local and state support to do it and get it done that way as opposed to going through this whole process through which the Olympics are often being painted in a bad light as the no sides in the different communities argue against bidding for the Olympics? I think, well, you know, the, when the IOC committed to this process, there were seven cities, lots of options, um, and the, the applicants seemed to be strong, and there, there didn't seem to be an issue. Uh, I think the IOC is committed to moving this forward and, uh, you know, trying to make the best of it. I, you know, if they were to do it again, um, you, you look, for instance, at uh, the, the Summer Games race for 2032. There's like nine cities now that said they, they're interested. Now, we don't know if that interest will, will, you know, sustain until they have to elect one of those cities in 2025. But there's still a lot of interest, and I think there's still a lot of interest in the Winter Games. It's just the circumstances that have led up to where we are now have, you know, just been the way they were. It's unusual. And it's just in a, in a time and place where the cities uh, and people are just rejecting these projects because of the, um, the expenses that have been involved. I think um, we need uh, a Winter Games bid uh, and a Winter Games that are successful and sustainable and have all these good things that people want to see. Um, we need one of those before minds are changed. Um, so it has to get there. There's Beijing coming up in 2022. Some question marks around there, but it's moving forward okay. And then there's 2026. So they'll do uh, what they have to do to get it to work. Um, now, Salt Lake City wasn't available to bid for these 2026 games because Los Angeles is hosting in 2028. So Los Angeles has the franchise rights for the United States for um, all the marketing and sponsorship and, and, those, and that revenue 
for a quadrennial, for the four years prior to the game. The, so if they were to inject Salt Lake City before that in 2026, that would reduce uh, Los Angeles's ability to raise money for their for their own project. They they wouldn't be happy about that. So the the United States Olympic Committee decided that hey, we're not going to go after 2026. It doesn't make sense. They kind of had their eyes on 2030. But if this opportunity arises, you know, perhaps they work out some kind of deal with the uh, with the uh, IOC and they figure it out and move forward from there. And that does it for the From the Hack podcast for week 13 of the 2018-2019 curling season. A big thank you to each of our guests this week, and a big thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.